In this world, it is best to be self-sufficient, but never forsake your dependable friends. This war has taken too much of our family. There may come a day you need help of a stranger, as so many have needed help from us. You can make friends by being honest, and you can keep them by being loyal. Those friends will expect you to be trustworthy too. You are listening to History Man, the platform for historians, curators, and authors to tell their stories of the American Revolution, walk in the footsteps of heroes, and proclaim freedom reigns. On today's episode, we are with Sheila Engel and her book, Brave Elizabeth. So welcome, Sheila. Thank you. Glad to be here. Sheila, how can uh, people get a hold of your book as we start this thing off? Amazon, bookstores all over South Carolina. They can get it in museums. Yorktown Museum carries my books. Just Google it, like I say, with that kind of information. Sheila, you got a, a background in, in history and education. You were a teacher, a professor, you're now uh, an author, a historian. You're held in such high regard in South Carolina. This is not the only book you've written. You've written a number of books. How many books altogether? Five. Five books altogether. Yes, sir. And, uh, and then you've published several articles, uh, or a couple articles, in the 250th Commission website. Uh, where people can go to for free and, and delve into some of the historical narratives coming out of this state. What a wonderful state to live in. What a wonderful history that our state has in the founding of the United States. The reasons for those foundings are lost in many respects. I think our listeners will come away from this episode at least knowing some of the reasons that people fought here in South Carolina for the independence of our country. Uh, and the creation of our country. It wasn't even a country. They didn't That's even know right. They, while they were fighting, they didn't even know it was going to turn into a country. They had hope. Mm-hmm. And where there's breath, there's hope. Yes, exactly. South Carolina motto. So, Sheila, tell us about your book. Okay. Elizabeth Jackson was the mother of President Andrew Jackson. So that gives her some credence right there, seems like to me. He is the only president that was born in South Carolina, number one, and of course being the mother of the only South Carolina president of the United States, that's that's big, I think, and her story is big. Her story is big and tragic. It is. But it's also, I think, a, a call to action for any young-blooded American to take some lessons from her, her life and apply that to their own life. What a heroic life she had. The saying, keep on keeping on, comes to my mind when I think about Elizabeth because she seemed to lose so much as her life was concerned here. What we would think of loss is concerned. She and her husband, Andrew Jackson Sr., left Ireland with two toddlers, three and one. They came over here because he wanted a new life. He'd had enough. He was a tenant farmer in Ireland and he wanted more, he wanted land. He was, even though they had linen in their background, she was an excellent spinner. He was a weaver, they had a good jobs over there. They wanted a place where they could own land. And she already had family over here with sisters over here. And so she was open to coming to America. And that's what they did. And they went to where sisters were living in the Waxhaws 
what was called that then, that's Lancaster County uh, today, but the Waxhaws, which is a beautiful place in the upstate again. All the upstate during this time must have been just a gorgeous wilderness. Describe, describe the topography in okay. the upstate. Uh, good rivers, rivers that were teeming with fish, turtles, all those kinds of things. Healthy, clean rivers. Uh, lots of animals uh, that were everywhere, plenty to eat, plenty to hunt, and um, red clay over there right. in so the wet sauce. Right, yes. so the fall line actually separates the low country from the upstate, and this is where the you're starting to get clay and rolling hills into the Piedmont mm -hmm. of North and South Carolina. Here. Right, good farmland right. for the most part, yes. And of course, they were dependent. I mean, there was no Walmart back then to go run to. There was nothing like that. They had to grow their own. They were independent farmers. We had talked on another episode about the Scotch-Irish and you just said they were from Ireland. Were they Scotch-Irish or were they actually Irish? They were Scotch-Irish also. Both sides of the families, both Andrew and Elizabeth, were from those original people that were brought in to Northern Ireland. You know, yes. so, so much of our, our lives and our personalities are some of the family histories that we bring with, uh, with us and we bring to the table and, and that are passed down. Uh, and, and our outlook or our viewpoint on life, and certainly the Scotch-Irish had a had a unique perspective on life that maybe was a little different than the planters from the low country uh, over near the coast or even the Huguenots that came from France. Uh, what was different about the Scotch-Irish in the way they perceived the world? Well, one thing, they were firm believers in education. That's something that I've been noticing about them in my research. They all were, and they only it wasn't just education for their sons, it was education for their daughters also. Everybody was literate. They believed in the written word, and they believed in passing down stories about their families too. That's one of the things that I read about as far as Elizabeth was concerned, that she told family stories to her sons about how the Scotch-Irish had in different, or the Irish had in different places, fought the English in Ireland for a little piece of land, a little castle or something like that, and they won. And uh, that was important to them also. Um, liberty, I'll just use that word, they did not want people holding them back, holding them down, and they wanted to be the best they could be wherever it was, and they did not feel like it was like that in Ireland. So we had wave after wave after wave of Scotch-Irish coming to America to get that kind of lifestyle where they could make their own time. I'm gonna go down a rabbit hole that I so often do on these episodes, but uh, when I think about the education and background of the Scotch-Irish, especially in the backcountry, I can't help but remember that this is also the time of the Scottish Enlightenment and, and how that played into their ideas of freedom and liberty and uh, you know, their, their associations and their viewpoint on government. Uh, do you have any thoughts on that? Well, it was deep-rooted in them, and I think that came from 
back several generations where they had been just not allowed to do what they wanted to do, not allowed to be what they wanted to be even. And it was it was deeply rooted in not only in their mindset, but almost in their, it was a blood thing with them, you know? Um, Andrew's brothers, one had been in uh, the Navy and had been all over the world, loved the sea, had had that adventure some bent, I guess you would say, in him and had enjoyed that. The other brother, the older brother Hugh, he had been in the British Army here in uh, the colonies and he came back with stories about the land again, about it being so open, it being plenty of it and you could come over here and you could make something of yourselves. And so they both brought those visions back to their younger brother Andrew and it was like he caught it you know, right. I, there's something better out there for me, and I want to go for it. And so, it his coming here was um, probably a, a family-oriented thought process. That okay, there's the opportunity. Let's go to the Carolinas. So this is Andrew Senior. Yes. Andrew yes. Senior. Yes. Okay. So, so when did they get here? Again, we're looking at mid 1700s. Some people say that they came into Charleston and went up the road to Camden and then into the Wax House. But there's a, another group that says they went into one of them, uh, like Philadelphia or somewhere else. So that is something that is sort of, we don't know exactly where they came in. But the fact is they were pointed in the direction of the Wax House because of her sisters and their families already live in there. So that was good. So many families came without anybody to be, to join or be a part of. Now they didn't live close to her sisters. He bought some land, 200 acres, a little bit way, ways, and it was not as fertile as the land close to the Wax House Presbyterian Meeting House where they went to church, but it was good. It, it was good land and of course the families got together built their one room log cabin the children were growing up there and um, they were only here a couple of years when Andrew had an accident and died she was pregnant with Andy and there she was a widow with two ch children under the age of five and expecting another one so was it an unusual death? It was a death. They don't know exactly what happened to him. He was out cutting some wood and something happened. I wrote about it as a possible hernia that he might have had in doing some, and you know, with there being no doctors, no hospitals, no nothing, that would be a destructive kind of something that could kill a person. And that's all that's known is that it was an accident and he was cutting wood but that that was enough and if you think about it maybe he even there was a misstep with the axe or something and cut himself There's, it's really unknown what happened but he died within just a little while well, so thank, she, thank goodness she had a family around exactly and of course she was invited to go and live with her sister and brother-in-law and their children um, she and the three young ones, and that's what they did. And she became the housekeeper, the second mother, because her sister 
was sickly, couldn't do a whole lot, and so she immediately found a place in with her extended family would be what it was and she took so her nephews kind of became her uh, second children exactly right. there was a whole slew of them yes right. that did eight of them as a matter of fact wow that became her second children yeah Right. So did she move from her 200-acre farm over to them, closer, closer into the Waxhaw? Moved in with them. She did. They invited her, and she did. It was a large house. It was a large house that had a um, second story, like the um, house in uh, Brattonsville and like the house at Walnut Grove. And the kids had the upstairs, and then the adults had the downstairs. And... She taught the girls the things they needed to know. Her sons were taught by their uncle the things they needed to know. It's very much a divided set of uh, workload between the two sexes during this particular time. Everybody had their set things that they did, but they all worked together to do what they needed to do as far as the farm was concerned. We're looking at a farming community what happened during the Revolutionary War? Her oldest son, Hugh, he was 16. He was the first to go off to war. He was in the Battle of Stono Ferry down near Charleston, and he died of heat exhaustion. This was a battle that happened in June. But um, he was sick when he left. That's the way the uh, information goes, and obviously, if anybody knows anything about South Carolina and the heat in the low country and the humidity and battle heat with you talking about all those, the firing that was gonna be going on and everything, he was overcome in some way and died at that particular battle. Some stories say that his body was brought back to her. He is buried next to his father in the Waxhaw Presbyterian Meeting House Cemetery. Uh, some say that he died there at the scene. But anyway, that was the first person she said goodbye to in that particular war. Uh, the next thing that happened to them was in 17, May of 1780, when you had the Battle of the Waxhaws, very close to where they lived. She and her two second sons, Robert and Andy, went to, uh, they saw part of the battle, they went to the battle, they helped those that, uh, from the Army in Virginia, that were killed by Tarleton and his men. And when I say killed, I'm going to use the word butchered because they were bayoneted, they were had limbs cut off, it was an ugly, ugly scene. And that 14-year-old, Robert, and that 12-year-old, Andy saw war up front and personal at, for the first time. And they were horrified and of course immediately being the young, uh, I'll call them patriots that they were at that time because they loved the land, they loved their family, they wanted to defend it against such, they wanted to go to war. Well. Elizabeth, or Betty, as she was called by her family and okay. friends, um, 
she wasn't about to let a 14 and a 12-year-old well, go off to war. She had come to a new country. She had lost her husband. She lost her firstborn. Right. How many does she have left? <laughs> she has two left. And she's not ready to send them off to war right. at all. Makes perfect sense to me. Makes sure. perfect sense. Um, she held them off a few months. That's what she did. Held them off. And then... Um, one of their friends, the nephew of the Reverend William Richardson, William Richardson Davy, he was in the vicinity. He was the one that was the leader of the group that was at the Battle of Stono Ferry. She knew the family, and he said that he would take the two boys on. He would keep them safe. He would give them jobs to do that would not put them in the front lines. But that's who they she signed them up for to work because it was about. So William Richardson is not who. No, that's the that's the minister. That's the minister. That's the minister. He's the uncle of William Richardson Davy. Because William Richardson Davy actually studied for the ministry at one time too. Right. Right. But did not get called. Did not call. Yeah, William Richardson, the minister, is a whole nother story about that. Okay. All right. Andy became the young one that took care of the horses. That was his job. And I thought when I read that, I thought, okay, that's not too important. That's a good safe place to be. But I wasn't thinking clearly about fire, a battle, horses, hearing those sounds, that kind of thing, the fear that they would have. That was a major operation to keep those horses tied up and settled so they did not break away and leave the scene. So he had a very important job during this time and um, did well. He was commended by the things that he did. Every third or fourth person was someone who held the horse. Yes. All right, so you had, you maybe have uh, 100 fighters, but 25 of them going into a battle, 25 of them are holding horses, right? Right. Because so, you have to hold, and you can only hold so many horses at one time, right? <laughs> exactly. Two hands. So, uh, but they were very important. And I'm sure he knew that. And at age 12, you know, 13, as he turned 13, that would have been an important plus for him, I think, as a man right. at, later in life, to sure. know that he was a part of that Revolutionary War and he helped them win those battles by keeping the horses there for them. In your research, did you find anywhere where he was a, uh, a messenger for William Davy to go back and forth to different people or different groups? He probably did some of that too because the people, it was sort of like a set group of assignments that they had. Right. And so of course he would have been a messenger person because he rode the, he was a good horseman to begin with. At, because of his training and living on the farm, all that kind of stuff. But the fact that they did not send their sharpshooters with messengers. It was the young ones on the totem pole, right. so to speak, that right. did things like that, yes. And uh, that was one of the ways that um, they got caught, he and Robert, as my, by the um, British. Because it was the next spring after the Waxhaws battle, after Hanging Rock and several of the others that they were involved in, that they were captured by the British in their cousin's home, which is another tale 
about him. Uh, he and Robert were being chased by the British. They went to their cousin's house, which rather than going to their mother's house there in the wax house, they went to their cousin's house. They were caught there by the British. You might have, I remember seeing in my South Carolina history book a long time ago, a picture of Andy and his brother and that captain with a raised saber in his hand that he eventually brought down on Andy and his brother. Andy took the blow from the saber on the side of his face and, and also his arm, all because he told the man no, that he was not gonna clean his boots. That was what the British officer demanded of him, and he said no. And then Robert said the same thing, and so he got slashed up, and the boys were, we're looking at now 13 and 15. They were bound, they were marched to the Camden Jail. Probably saw their mother as they were marched by with other prisoners down to that Camden Jail that was full of smallpox and full of people that were not their friends. Sure. So we have open wounds from the sabers. Robert, uh, the, the oldest brother, 15-year-old? Yes. His wound was pretty serious. It was. A lot more serious than Andy's. Right. Not, not minimizing Andy's wound exactly. at all because sepsis can set in on any wound. Exactly. Especially during that time and because there's the medical um, facilities are not what they are today, you know, but um, that was a serious wound that his brother, in fact, I'm not sure his brother survived from that wound. It was the smallpox that took him out, okay. took him right. out. Okay. That was one of the things that was in that jail. It was just all over the place in that okay. jail. And of course, smallpox back then, even though General Washington had made sure that he had inoculated all his troops during the Valley Forge sojourn, everybody was not inoculated. It was not something that was common procedure back then. And so, of course, once the smallpox was in the uh, jail, it went rampant. It went, uh, everybody caught it. And so by the time that Betty, Elizabeth, as we call her each name, uh, she went down and got her sons exchanged after the Battle of Camden, she was able to get an exchange going with uh, Colonel Rowden, and she did that and got them out. By the time she got Robert and Andy home to the Waxhaws, Robert's, the smallpox was just raging in him, and he died. She could not save his life. She lost her second child. Second child. Andy, it took him all summer to recover from the smallpox. He also got malaria on the side. And so he was probably a walking skeleton by the time that he was able to really get off off his bed and do anything. It just, those were serious, serious illnesses back then. And the thing about it is, Elizabeth knew, she found out that three of her nephews were on the prison ships in Charleston. And this was three of those nephews that she had raised in the home there all those years. And she decided since Andy was doing pretty well, he was on his feet, 
he could stay with his other uncle, that he, he'd be okay. She had to go see about them. She just felt it in her heart. She had to go see about it. And this is the sickly sister's children. Exactly. And the sickly Ex sister go with her? No, sickly sister has died. She has died. She has died. She's lost her sister. She's lost her husband. She's lost two children. Yes. She's it, the only woman figure in that home at this point. Right. Only one standing, is so to speak. Is the uncle still there? Is he in the The listening? uncle is wounded, but he is still alive, not able to do a whole oh, lot. He's about to decimate this whole exactly. thing. Exactly. Exactly. It is. It's, it's serious doings. Serious doings. So what does she do? She finds out they're on this prison ship. Right. She decides she's going to go down there. Two other women from the community decide to ride with her. This is in the Wax Isles, and they're going to Charleston, okay? This is looking at several days worth of riding. They're going to take medicines with them, probably had some food, that kind of thing. It was like she was compelled. Everything I read about Elizabeth, it was like she was compelled to do this, that, and the other. She was compelled to go and nurse those men that's over not, at the wax That's house. not unlike some of the women mothers of today. Exactly. There, you'll do whatever, you know, and, and you know in your heart that it's the right thing to do. Right. It, that's, so that's why she went off to Charleston and left her youngest there with his other uncle. Did she give him any parting words? She did. She did give him some parting words. Basically, she told him to be a good friend. That's who, she was very into that. It was interesting with her. Well, two do you, lines. Do you have the letter? Yeah, I do. You want uh, to read the whole thing? No, but I want to read the last part of it okay. because I think it's very important because I think it defines what she was saying. Uh, she says, shrink not from the service of your country. Your country deserves the love and thanks of man and woman. That And that, to me, was very important to her and to and him. She told him not to loan, uh, to take loans from anybody in the course of her letter, which I thought that was interesting. Why, whether that was to make him feel like he was independent, I guess, for lack of a better word, possibly independent, but she found that to be very important. She, she made sure that Andy got a good education. She sent him to the church schools there in the area. Each one of the meeting houses, most of them, had a church school that the kids went to when they weren't having to work on the farm or that kind of thing. And so she made sure that they had to do that. And that, to me, was very important. She wanted him to be self-reliant. And, you know, I am going to read this. I'm going to go back and read what I included in it. Andrew, if I should not see you again, I wish you to remember and treasure up some things I have already said to you. In this world, it is best to be self-sufficient, but never forsake your dependable friends. This war has taken too much of our family. There may come a day you need help of a stranger, as so many have needed help from us. You can make friends by being honest, and you can keep them by being loyal. Those friends will expect you to be trustworthy too. 
and personal contact, always be courteous. I have seen that temper of yours overcome your sound judgment. No one likes a bully, Andy. If your saber scars remind you of that, then you will always be the honorable and compassionate man I have watched you become. I love you, Andy, and I am most proud of the man you are and the man you are becoming. That gets you choked up. A little bit. A little, little bit. bit. Yeah. Not always, but it did today. Yeah. And the thing about it is she left him in a good way. She left him with words of encouragement, with words of love, with advice, all, all three, to becoming the man that he was. And even though she died in Charleston, after being on those prison ships, he never saw her again. He never found out where she was buried, even though he went to Charleston, even though he tried to find where her burial place was. She was buried somewhere outside the city by some former friends of hers from the Waxiles that were down there. He never forgot her. He talked about her in his letters. He talked about the influence that she had on him. And it was almost like he didn't forget what the British had done to him, too. He carried those wounds with him, as she mentioned, with him all his life. Probably had a lot to do with the fierceness at the Battle of New Orleans that he led our men into with that. But he always, he talked about her in, in such a, um, a caring way that he had learned so much from her. And he talked about her very small Bible she kept in her pockets all the time, that she was a praying woman. She was a good friend. She knew about that good friend part that he she was talking about to him because she had been a good friend to Reverend William Richardson's wife who had been accused of killing her husband, which was another little episode in the Waxile community. Reverend William Richardson, um, and he was a good preacher, good friend to the people that he worked with in his community, but he committed suicide. He uh, hung himself in his home, in his library, and he was found uh, kneeling beside a, pre uh, a chair, um, hanging from the ceiling. The people in the community felt like she might have had some, his wife might have had something to do with it, but she didn't. Uh, the thing about it was that Elizabeth was his wife's good friend. She stood by her. She stood by her. She went to church with her when people would turn away from her, when she would go in the church building, that kind of thing. She was a true friend to someone that for a season was considered not excommunicated from the church or the community, but rebuffed from Certainly the church. under suspicion. Under right. suspicion, right, right. What would you want people to take? These are great stories. I think what I like, we have a tendency to romanticize history, and uh, especially in the South, good gracious. Uh, but I think what I like about these stories is the raw, organic, real 
aspect of these stories. These really happened. These were real people. Exactly. We're not talking about some fictitious hero fighting for a fictitious world. We're talking about real people with scars, marks, and, and all sorts of insecurities and flaws fighting for something that, that we end up living within the bounty of that, of what they, what they created, a new world, which is a new country. Um, uh, what would you want people to take away from your stories uh, of, these, of these women? They didn't give up. They did, they did the next thing. That's something that my grandmother used to tell us. Um, and she lived it out as a young widow that inherited a farm in Kentucky and uh, kept that farm until she went blind. And she kept on doing each day. She did the next thing, whatever that next thing was. And these women did that, whether it was mending a shirt uh, from one of the children, whether it was um, hunting when the husbands were not there, when she would go out with her rifle and kill a deer and bring it home and do what she needed to do to put food on the table, or whether it was nursing uh, a loved one at her own expense, like Elizabeth did when going to see about her nephews. They just did the next thing, and I, I admire that. I admire that. There's nothing wrong with admiring those those personality traits that are positive, is there? I don't think so. Thank you so much. Thank you. Mm -hmm.